Okay. So uh, in this episode uh, of Unstandardized English, a podcast in which we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized, and I am your host, Dr. J.B.D. Gerald. Anyway, in this episode, I am going to speak to Dr. Amina Duweedy. Um, truth be told, I'm not entirely sure where the conversation is going to go. And I'm being honest with you, I never know where the conversation is going to go. I record these intros before the episode, which is probably not the way to do it. I know the vocal fries, their intro, they just have a conversation and they say, and then we had a good conversation with the person who was really interested, right? That's the professional way to do it, and I am not. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, she's one of my, my, my down people, one of my language people who, uh, who's down stuff I'm doing. So we'll have a good conversation. You'll enjoy it, all right? You, by the time that you have listened to this, the title will explain what's going on. But otherwise, yeah, things are going okay for me. Um, I'm in this really interesting period after the book came out, but I'm now in this period where a lot of people have it but haven't finished it yet. So still waiting for a collective response. But you're probably tired of hearing about the book, right? All right. Well... Uh, I am going to bring a special guest into this introduction, and uh, you can hear from him shortly. Okay, so say what you want to say. <laughs> what? That's those are not words. Ezel, you, you, you can speak. You know that, right? Those are not words. Well, you're giving people the impression that you can't actually talk. You know that, right? Why don't you say, what's your name? Ezel. Okay. And what's your mama's name? Mom, what is Mama's name? Um, Alexa. Yeah, you knew that. I know people are gonna hear me tell you, but you knew that. And what's Dada's name? Justin. What is Dada's name? Justin. Justin. Yes, it's Justin. <laughs> and what subway train is that? Seven train. Seven train. What's your favorite subway train? The seven train. Okay. We went on the seven train yesterday? Yeah. We did? <laughs> he has a cough at the moment. Don't worry, people. It's not COVID. All right. Are you finished talking to the people? Yeah. Okay. Say goodbye, everybody. No, don't wave. You have to say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Okay. So, Dr. Dweedy, I'm saying that right, right? Yes, Dweedy. Uh-huh. Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about, you know, because I know this whole thing is going to be about your journey from the past to the present, and uh, also tell us about the honeymoon that you just went on. <laughs> but you can save that for the end. 
Well, um, I did mention that I come from Algeria, and whenever I have an opportunity to introduce myself, I do introduce myself as an Algerian and position myself as an African, North African, in most of the spaces I enter. This is where I grew up, and this is where my family is, and this is where I feel home. But I'm currently living in the UK, and I've been here for the past eight years, came here to do my PhD, liked it very much, and I'm, you know, uh, making my stay as long as possible. Stay as long as possible. And where do you stay? Yeah, um, uh, I live with my husband in Southampton. There you go. (laughs) In Southampton. Uh, That's where I stay. And I've, I've stayed in a couple of places uh, within the Southampton area, mostly. It's in the south of England. It's a small city where I get to go uh, to the city centre just by walking. I don't need a car or anything like that. I kind of enjoy it here. All right. Well, that's good. So that's But that's interesting because I always like to have people come on here who do different things from just my little Northeast American, you know, um, context. Because I think the people listening to this show, I mean, they're from a few different places, but obviously probably most of them are American and Canadian, which I know are not the same from as one another. But uh, then the whole, the way the UK thinks of race and, and, and other ideologies, it's like, these are the same ideologies, but they, they like to think that they're different, which I think is funny. <laughs> as if it didn't come from over there. But anyway, um, so... Yeah, that you came from, as the title of the episode will say, a position where you were at least majoritized within your context. Yes. Right. And oh, I suppose majoritized, the word implies context, right? Um, but anyway, you came from being the group that was most people. Yes. Um, and then you weren't. So, you know, what was that transition like? I guess maybe talk a little bit about you know, the way you thought of your early career before your PhD um, and when you were at, quote-unquote, at home. Not quote-unquote, but at home. Uh, and then how you had to sort of, you know, maybe what you had to renegotiate about your identity or what you learned about it once you were in a different position and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I am um, light-skinned. This is a very important information as for my positionality within those spaces, either in Africa, North Africa or in Europe, UK or in other countries where I've lived or where I've worked um, and where I've traveled. So the color of my skin is is, is um, an, an important characteristics. I am of Muslim origin and tradition, and I'm, practic- I'm practicing Muslim as well, but I don't... Um, I, 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 I don't fit into the European narrative of how a Muslim woman should look like or uh, is portrayed in the media. I don't wear the veil. I don't, um, necessarily, um, dress as what a stereotypical Muslim woman looks like in the Western media most of the time. Um, I also, um, the fact that I, um, 
a speaker of a number of languages. I speak Arabic, French, English and Spanish. That helps me navigate a number of spaces, uh, which gives me access as well and gives me understanding of certain environments. So um, I am I would position myself as a, a member of the majority in Algeria and in my hometown and in my professional space back home in Algeria because of those criteria, because of my skin, because of the languages I speak, which is uh, Arabic and French, um, and also because of... Um, because of the education I have and the back, the educational background that I have, the family I belong to, the social origin and class I was part of um, in Algeria, which has shifted when I immigrated, um, and 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 um, my also identity as a female who does not necessarily wear the veil in the context of Algeria, given the history of um, uh, the history of. Algeria with um, with religious groups and our tensions tensions with the religion uh, as it is practiced in the society. So um, I used to work at university. I used to work as a lecturer for international students who majoritarily come from sub-Saharan Africa, mainly Tanzania or or uh, some of them from Ghana as well. And I was um, a mediating teacher where I would be teaching French, but also able to communicate with them in English and be the, the mediator between the administrative staff and uh, themselves. So that, again, positioned me as a representative of the majority in front of my students. So the concept of being a minority only sank in when I travelled abroad, when I started working in the UK and studying in the UK, and when I started um, being exposed to concepts like, for example, the imposter syndrome, which is a buzzword among international, but also uh, PhD students and PhD researchers. And that was a concept that was foreign to me, and I was like, but what what do you mean that the frustration I'm going through as a researcher, um, as an early researcher, could be identified or classified as, an, as me being an imposter? So I started questioning the concept of the imposter and I realized that it was linked to the fact that I was minoritized in that space, in the academic space in the UK. And that's not something I felt in the academic space in Algeria. My voice was uh, relevant when I was in Algeria, and then my voice was questioned when I was in in the UK. Um, And the excuse that was put forward was that I am in a higher education setting where critical thinking is at the center of it all. And that is the assumption, there is the assumption that when you come from global south universities, critical thinking is not a concept that is promoted. Therefore, we have to teach you how to be a critical thinking person. So, um, this is where subtly, uh, within a, a British tradition, I started kind of, uh, unveiling the concept of being minoritized and there are other layers of the student life in UK higher education that made me aware of how a minority 
I might be perceived how how I might be perceived as a minority member. So you said a lot of things there, and I want to pick up on some of them because um, when you talked about sort of being perceived as members of a majoritized group, and then how you had to like how your position really changed when you moved physically, in terms of different terms of types of identity religion, gender, not just race and skin color, which is not the same thing as race, but it's part of it. Um, there's also a lot of people when I was teaching in Korea, a lot of white people um, would tell me, oh, they understand what it's like to be a minority now. And I'm like, okay. All right. That's the problem with using the word in terms of just numbers, minority, majority. I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying the way that they, the way that because people don't understand that it's contextual, that it's minoritization and majoritization, they will say, well, I'm a minority in this place, right? And I'm like, yeah, numerically, but you still can tap into societal power, right? And so I think that that's different when you're talking about, like if I was, I don't know, Jamaican, right? Like my father-in-law, and then I moved here, I think you can easily go from being part of a visible majority, but still minoritized in the world, which I think is different, right? Because uh, until, what, 1962 in Jamaica, they were still owned by the UK, right? <laughs> so that's not quite the same as being a white guy from New Jersey who goes to Korea and is like, oh my God, there's more Koreans than white people. It's just like, it's not, not the same thing. So your experience is more akin to what I was just talking about, especially in, you know, countries that are colonial subjects at some point, right? The, you know, you don't just speak French because, um, <laughs> uh, and I mean, you might have chosen to, but obviously you understand what I'm saying. Um, and I think that a lot of people who aren't in your position, and I'm not in your position, I have my own experiences, but, but I still, I'm in the same place that I grew up in. So there's, there's no change. Um, you know, what you shared there, I think, is really important for people to understand. And I think it's people who are, who can tap into axes of power, which is to say, whether it's gender, race, whatever, um, and there's obviously more than one at once. Uh, it's not quite the same as if you are in a global minoritized position, even if you're in a contextually majoritized position. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I was the only um, light-skinned person in my classroom when I was teaching my, my Tanzanian students. So, but I was still the majoritized individual in that space. I was the one I mentioned mediating, but I was within the axis of holding power because I was able to um, negotiate a, a number of, of things that they were not able to, and access a number of things they were not able to access within that institution which was the 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 main space where we we were all you know seeking knowledge so i was the only person in a group of 69 or 70 people uh but that was female arab muslim north african light skin 
which didn't make me a minority. So if we look at the concept from a qualitative perspective, and that's my researchers speaking here, then we're looking at power dynamics as you so well uh, formulated it. So the power dynamic changed and shifted when I immigrated. And this is where I would be in a room where there are 10 Algerian PhD students and one British person sitting in a reading group. But I would still be the minority or minoritized because of how, for example, the topic of sociology is addressed and the topic of methodology is addressed and considerations that are um, the, the, the topics that are discussed within that space or reading group would not take into consideration my experience as a researcher in the Global South or from the Global South, where the Global South becomes the periphery and I belong to that periphery. And I am reminded about it just because of the methodology that is promoted in that room or because of the imperial um you know, reflective processes that are promoted as being the standard or the universal approaches, etc. So I um again numbers are quantitative in that sense and they don't position me necessarily as a majoritized person in a space where people like me exist. Um, and that happened to me as well when I started teaching in the UK, where I kind kind of wrestled with the concept of am I a minority or minoritized in this space or am I not? And what's happening here? And that's a, a constant question that takes place. But I think the answer to that is it can be both yes and no, right? You know, because when I think about, this is where I talk about in my book about the teaching and career work. I'm clearly part of the power structure of EFL by taking that job, right? And I'm not necessarily blaming myself, although I kind of blame myself in the book. I mean, I was an adult, but I hadn't studied these power things, right? So I'm part of the power structure by be, by taking that job. The job was only offered to people from certain countries, so I'm part of the power structure of those countries. And, of course, I'm speaking English. So there's that power structure, and I'm a man and all that, but that there, there were a lot of women. It, it wasn't so much like obviously I had that power, but that wasn't the power of the classroom in that sense. Um, but then, of course, I got to see a different side of things because of the other aspects of my person, of my identity. You know, like I'm part of a certain power structure, but like I'm, am I really like, you know, is this really benefiting me? And um. Of course, it's not benefiting the people who have the power either. Like, they don't seem like that. <laughs> it's like tearing it off me. But anyway, it really wasn't benefiting me. And um, so I think if people, and one of the problems with all of this is that people will realize that they are a, a part of power in some way, and they'll do whatever they can to be more, to closer to it. And I understand that if you're in a dire situation, you do what you can and there's not enough people listening to this podcast for me to worry that people are going to be offended by me saying that people should do certain things as if I'm lecturing poor people, which I'm not. Um, so, but like it, 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 all I'm saying with the teaching thing is that if I was having an issue and this will show you if you're, if you are or aren't part of the power structure, if I was having an issue in Korea, I just fucking go home. 
<laughs> like if it was that bad, and people yeah. did this all the time, they just left. Right? Yeah. You weren't you weren't chained up there, and it wasn't a situation where like obviously your visa says when you have to leave, but you could leave before the visa's over. Right? Like you know, you 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 could leave tomorrow if you wanted to. Not you. I mean, in that situation, and you know, it, it, and so. I think that choice, like a lot of the, the, sometimes it's power over other people, but sometimes it's power over yourself. Yeah. And, and having power over yourself is good. <laughs> you know, like having the ability to choose things for yourself is good. Um, and people confuse the autonomy that comes with certain types of privilege with domination. Mm. You know, and, and you bring up that situation where, and there are many schools in the UK and the United States and Canada where there'll be departments and the pace based on the, the subject matter, it'll be a very international department or it'll be a very black department or whatever the context happens to be. And people will say, well, you're in a group of black people or you're in a group of Algerians or you're in a group of Muslims or whatever it is. And therefore, if you're part of that group, you have power. Mm-hmm. More than you would if you were the only one, but who's still calling the shots? Exactly, exactly. The structure has been there before you arrived. The institution has been built before you arrived. It has a history of uh, hierarchy in terms of power, and the hierarchy is established in um, has been established way before you arrived, and it, it, it follows certain racial and and gender um, organizations that you probably are not aware of, and they are not necessarily written in a in a in, in the blueprint, but they 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 are there. Um, if, if, um, I would say in my school, we were, uh, majority, the majority of the PhD researchers were international students. It didn't mean that we had more privileges than the local ones. So that starts with the visas, with the, uh, tuition fees, with the restrictions when it comes to the number of days you can take off. Uh, but also, if you are part of a religious group, you had to ask for a praying prayer space to be created. And then if you are negotiating that prayer space, you need to go through the effort of making that prayer space multi-faith in order to be inclusive. And then maybe they would accept it if I don't make it a Muslim-centered uh, request, but rather a request that includes um, other other faiths or other kind of well-being practices for it to be accepted to you, you wrestle with these ideas how can my different individualities or different ident- identities as a minoritized although we are a group of 10 versus two people uh, who are international of muslim origin where two people would be more of a, a local, but then I, I wouldn't be able to make an assumption about their um, religious belonging or not, for that matter. So what I think is interesting about what you said there is this is one of the ways that certain Americans will get on their high horse, because especially in the cities, and that is to be clear, different, right? New York, LA, all those places are different from a lot of parts of the country. And, and I, it would be silly for me not to pretend that that's not why I live here, right? Like I don't, I, I understand there's plenty of racism, classism and everything here, but I understand how to deal with the issues here. 
I know the dynamics of New York City, but would know them in Chicago or something. I'd have to learn, but whatever. But even outside of the cities, there are enough actual laws, right, in place, policies that every airport, for example, will have. It doesn't. It's not as much of a lift to get the basic level of of accommodation in a lot of places here. That's not. Not. I'm about to be very critical. I'm not saying this is crazy United States. I was saying we're really good at that surface level bullshit. I'm not now. I'm not saying it's not good to have the equitable fair space. I'm saying it's very much like we're very good at giving you that and then saying now shut up. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, you wanted it translated. As, as first of all, as long as it doesn't inconvenience them, then it's something that they could brag about. And talk about how much we do. And whereas I think in some other places, and I don't necessarily know the case in every university in the UK or whatever, but like that, that you wouldn't have to ask any at most unless you're like a Christian university. But like you wouldn't have to ask here for like a Muslim prayer space in in uh, most universities here, which is to say they will tell you like on their website like we have this percentage of this and this percentage of that. But then the insidious stuff right, is when you go to try to change the ideologies, then they'll point to this surface shit and say, well, we did that already. Leave me alone. And, or I had an argument two years ago. Why would you know this? But you know the Hamptons, which are named after where you are, right, in Long Island. Well, Long Island is near New York City, obviously. And Long Island, if you look at the entire Long Island, is diverse. But it's diverse in a really segregated way. Like a black town, white town, black town, Hispanic town, whatever, whatever, right? Like if, if, if you, if you want to see people living somewhat close to each other, you got to be in the city. New York is still very segregated, but you, you don't have to drive to the black neighborhood. You can walk to the next neighborhood, right? Whereas in these other towns, they're separated by highways. So you're not going to interact with people in the other town as much. I say all this to say, people in Long Island, the white people in Long Island, will tell you, Long Island is so diverse, how could you say there's racism here? And I'm just like, you don't, you, you live miles away from them. <laughs> you made sure that they didn't live in your town, but the fact that you gave them a bad town that you don't fund over there, and now you think that you're tolerant and supportive because you didn't physically make them leave Long Island because you needed workers to exploit. All right, tell me about how Long Island is the, the place to do it. Yeah, the space exists actually within the university. But then when you look at the the, the the faculty where I was, or when you look at this the microcosm where we've been uh, kind of uh, concentrated, so uh, we would look uh, or ask for accommodations, of course. And that was uh, pre-COVID. Um, then things changed after. Uh, COVID and um, I assume that there is a lot of universities now are um, kind of signing up for a diversity, equity, inclusion policy and uh, showing with pride how they um, they uh, commit to to certain values um, in order to be more inclusive of of minoritized groups, uh, which is another way of minoritizing and highlighting who's minoritized and who's not, which is in in some way a good thing because you're kind of admitting what we've already been experiencing, but 
around um you know making it sometimes it is just for ticking the boxes really and that's where people like myself and professionals who are still closer to the higher education industry try to keep those institutions accountable with as little as an email or um, um a comment on their on their social me- media post calling them out really so um if it is not done of course within a professional frame it it has to be done within a personal as a personal initiative so I understand what you're saying about um, checking the boxes and about reminding you when you request a certain accommodation that look we're doing all these nice things already and that's also something I, I kind of reflect on when I am solicited as a professional who is of my background and I do question am I being solicited because of my skills and because of my education and and qualifications or am I being solicited because I am a a brown woman in the global north who is um, active in within the space of diversity equity and inclusion um so yeah, these are questions that I do I do ask myself in in my professional life. You said something very interesting about um your teaching experience and how you um wrestled with or navigated the different privileges that you had but also were conscious and aware of the different um privileges that you didn't have because of your race or because of um other identities that you you live with i i also kind of navigate spaces in, in this way especially within the teaching english language teaching industry um i can i can share share with you two examples if you want to go ahead about about, about a situation where i was uh, subtly in a very british way put back into my place of a minoritized individual who might not have had the legitimacy of being an EAP teacher in UK higher education. So the first one was my first experience as a staff member of uh, in the, within the UK higher education system. And I was a part of a team. I was recruited and realized that we were part of four females. Uh, three of them were... Um, white women and myself and I do identify as a person of color um, within um, the space I was in and then one of them came to me saying that she didn't understand why her white male friend didn't get the job and he also spoke as many languages as I did um and then that really shook me because that these are these subtle ways of saying you are an imposter or you are not legitimate enough or I don't know, I might have spelled something wrong and my grammar was not necessarily polished or things like that. And then you were reminded of, oh, why didn't my perfectly qualified friend why didn't he get a job? And the second instance happened, I think, four years after that. Um, and then another colleague, fresh first week of induction, 
came to me and she said, you know, I work, I was working with a different and another teacher in another university and she also applied and I didn't really understand why she didn't get the job. She was brilliant. And deep down I was thinking, I was like, why are you telling me this? And why is it to me that you're saying that uh, in a group of other colleagues? Why is it addressed to me? Uh, but then I had to rise above that. I didn't put me in a position where I had to prove myself because I've learned from the first experience. So I didn't put myself under the pressure of working twice as hard as others, which has been, you know, the process uh, for me for, for some years now. But um, it was a, a daunting, very daunting and hurtful experience where I was reminded that I was minoritized, even though we were all having the same pay slip. We were all teaching the same number of students. We were all in the same kind of level um, on the surface. It, you know, that whole like people, I don't know, the what weird racial confessions people do. Uh, it happened to me two weeks ago. The same day I gave the talk that you saw, I gave a different talk. And it was me, it was a panel. It wasn't just me like you, like the one you saw. Um, and so there were three of us. We each spoke for 10 minutes or whatever. It opened for questions. First fucking question, this lady comes on. And it's just having a meltdown slowly. <laughs> she wasn't being mean to anybody. She just took up all this space with her like anxiety about these things. And she's like, I had these students and here's what happened. And then it turns out and that like basically she was saying that these particular students weren't succeeding and she was worried that her having, whether that means giving them a bad grade or I wasn't even paying attention after a while. Gave them bad grade or, or was critical of their work and she was worried that it would be seen as racist and she wanted reassurance about that. Right. And, you know, <laughs> by the end of it, we were all like, Oh my God, lady, you know, because I think it's, it's a lot of things where there's this group of people who understand racism as only the, the worst of things, even like actual like conservatives understand that being seen as racist is bad. Right. Which is, I, I'm not sure that's progress. Uh, it's because it, all it means is that they try to say that everything isn't racist, but like, cause like there was a time when it wasn't a big deal to, it just was like some people just racist. Like, you know, when people would just say, oh, interracial marriage is bad. Like that's just not really that many people anymore. Right. Like I'm not saying people have evolved, but like on specific things, like people have gotten, even if you personally aren't into it, like people don't answer polls with, I think that they should outlaw interracial marriage anymore. Like 10% of people, whatever. Um, but they still, it's, it's like they're trying to, the whole reason they're trying to change the education about it is that what CRT and all these things do is they show that racism and other things are part of fabric of the world we live in. And therefore, if someone says that something's racist, yeah, probably. <laughs> and to them, they, it means that they have to be really vigilant because it means like, oh, is everything I'm doing racist? That's ridiculous. It's like, well, maybe. <laughs> it's like you know like if, if you don't want to 
I don't even like having a conversation about whether or not a person is racist because sure, most people are to some extent, but it's more of, I care more about what people do. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I, I really don't care what people think. They want to be racist up here, but they do actions that don't harm people. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I don't know what you're thinking or she's thinking or he's thinking. Aside from if someone puts a book together, whatever, I know what they're thinking. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really know what somebody is thinking. I just know what they do. Mm. And so, yes, how you think informs what you do, but not necessarily because you might be forced to do something because of the policy or the law or whatever, right? There's probably people who commit what we consider many terrible things that they're just like, well, you know, I don't want to go to jail. Now, I'm not saying the jail is the answer. I'm just saying there are people who the decisions aren't always just based on somebody's ideas and what they believe. There's other factors. There's other motivations. And um, I mean, but it's just to think about because that's the most infuriating thing is when people are just like whining that the vitriolic people are annoying. But like, as you saw with that conversation in, in the in the whatever. Mostly they were just whining. Yeah. In the message board. People who were listening don't know what I'm talking about. There was, I, I gave a talk that, uh, Amina was at and, uh, it was posted on the TSOL message board and some people were just having problems with it. And, you know, it's mostly goofy, <laughs> but like these people would write paragraphs and paragraphs about why it was offensive that this and this and this to the point where that the TSOL president showed up to make sure that nobody was asking a fool. But people are cowards. Nobody came to bother me in my actual talk. Yeah. <laughs> and, it does, and nobody ever comes to bother me in person. I've getting, I, when I get racist stuff, it's emails. Like it's not during the thing. It's usually someone finds my email address, which you can find on my website, or there's just a button on my website. Um, and you can contact me. That's when I get like slurs and all that. But when people are just having a public conversation, they're just, they're just so anxious. <laughs> and, uh, now generally speaking, when I, if I'm paid to give a talk, I will soak up your anxiety. Cause sure, that's part of what I'm being paid for is to just deal with your, your nonsense. <laughs> you know, it's like the therapist. Like I'm not going to fix your problem. And I tell people like, I can't fix this for you, but I can tell you whether or not you know, I, I, I cannot soothe your anxiety, and that's what people want sometimes. And I won't do it. First of all, I can't. Mm. And second of all, I won't. Mm. And there's a person who, it makes me a little bit sad because we were pretty good friends. But mm. she's, one, she's one of the people who, you know, just started having racial anxiety meltdowns after 2020, right? She didn't say anything racist to me at all. Um, it was more like she realized how racist her parents were. Mm. People don't know how to deal with that, which sucks. I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> it's like, oh well, <laughs> that's a difficult situation to be in. Glad I'm not in it. Um, but it, she, um, she was dating someone who wasn't white and her parents didn't like it. And I was like, I don't know what you want me to do about it. You are 30 something years old. They do not pay your rent. So you can just stop. Like you can cut them. You just cut them off or something. I don't know. You say it's easier said than done, but it's, I mean, let me tell you one thing. I'm done listening to it. Uh, Cause she's like, my parents came and they yelled at me for dating him. And I'm just like, what, like what, first of all, what are you putting this man through? It, 
I'm not going to say anything crude about it, but it's like he must really enjoy his time with you. Let's put it that way for him to be putting himself through this nonsense, uh, you know, and the anxiety people. And then the pre-2020 anxiety was a different type of anxiety. It wasn't usually as explicitly tied to race, but like, you know, I would date people and then I wouldn't say anything about their parents. And they would be like, you know, my parents. And I'm just like, see, like, I don't. I just, I'm just going to assume your parents are like that. You don't have to tell me. And if it's so bad that you have to warn me, probably we're not going to work because I'm not trying to deal with your parents. Mm. Um, because they would get so anxious about it, about like the fact that they liked someone and they couldn't deal with the tension. And I'm just like, yeah, that's the tension that you always all put on us. Is, see, mm. I had a point, I had a point here is that all of that tension that they're feeling, now, the tension that we feel is different. So there might be more danger, whatever. But most of the time, like, although there are times when we're in physical danger, most of the time it's emotional, psychological, whatever. And I said this on my, I can't remember if it was my last episode, because I don't remember. I don't necessarily record these in order, so I can't remember when I said it. But I've noticed, especially since I've done a lot of work, um, both the scholarship and just like emotionally, mentally and stuff like that, that like, when certain types of racist things happen, and again, I'm not talking about like someone coming up to me and threatening me, but it doesn't really happen. But when people send me certain emails or they say things that really strike me the wrong way, like someone, my former running coach posted a, an article about some crime that had happened and said, everybody needs to watch out. Now, this in itself is not racist. However, the narrative that that everything is going to whatever it's like if you actually look at the numbers and stop reading the sensationalist stories the crime rate in new york is the same level as it was in 2013 not the same as it was in the 80s not the same as it was in the 90s not the same as it was in the 2000s but rupert murdoch really wants people to be scared of stuff and so I get that feeling I get. It's a physical feeling. It's just like a sad feeling. Mm. Um, it's a tight, bad feeling. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily even get mad at them. Mm. You know? Because they're not saying it to me. Like, I'm just noticing it. And we should not have to be the one feeling that tension. Mm. That, like, the whole point of all this is, well, I don't know what the point of all this is, but <laughs> is, or, or like, that's why at the end of my book, I get really like forceful. Like, I'm being measured, I mean, you know, and so forth, but at the end of the book, I'm like, white people listen to me. <laughs> that's the end of the book. I'm just like, listen to me. Uh, it's that you, not you, but they need to, to accept and sit with that tension because we will always have it. Mm. You know, I, there's things that we can improve about our lives and our careers and our situations and so forth. But like, we instinctually, unless we're in deep denial, like a Candace Owens or something, understand that feeling. Mm. Whether or not we're in tune enough with our emotions and thoughts to recognize it. Hmm. is a different question and I did, had to do a lot of work to be able to recognize that that sensation is singular and cannot be it's only one thing you know 
tightness is not singular, but the particular sad tightness of experiencing aspects of racism, um, or just seeing the, or just the recognizing the prominence, you know, the pervasiveness, mm. right, is 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 that feeling. Um, you so. you mentioned um you mentioned a couple of, of themes that I can jump on, but um if I could just take you back to a really interesting point that you highlighted in your presentation with the TESOL ICIS, which was about being specific about what kind of racism we're talking about. Um, you talk about anti-black racism. You talk about anti-insert religion racism, anti-insert ethnic group racism. And this distinction is very important because even within the um, the group um, that I belong to, which is people of color, there is anti-blackness and there is anti-black racism. And this is where I kind of relate to the experience of your friend who whose parents have problems with with them dating somebody from a different racial group. And this is where I am brought back to my majoritized uh, position back home where I am part of the majoritized group that holds that kind of anti-black, anti-certain um, specific racial groups racism where the parents won't allow you or won't let you um, either socialize or marry somebody from a different racial group. And then there is the other kind of regional differentiations uh, that happens because you are considered the majoritized group and then you wouldn't mingle with other regions or people from other backgrounds and that's an, that's an experience that I've uh, went through that I experienced as a teenager choosing who to date and picking my dates and saying what kind of factors enter in play other than liking somebody really and then you end up internalizing these social behaviors and those learnings that come from your local group or from your family and you're like actually you're not supposed to date somebody from a different group or from a different racial group or from a different religious group or from a different region etc um, etc et and these are behaviors that have been instilled and I like to go back to the fact that now as being an adult an adult and a mature intellectual person who's capable to rationalize and kind of deconstruct those learning behaviors to a certain limit that it is um, bigger than us and it, it has been instilled for years colonialism has a big part to um big part in it uh, the fact that algeria for example has been colonized for 132 years and people were convinced that the fact that they have a light skin like mine they are a superior group a superior group um and or people who come from from the north are superior from people who come from the south or if you are from the center uh, of the town you are superior to the people in the periphery and it goes like this it goes into these institutionalized racism 
that has been established and there is a long history as well even before the religion of islam has been established within in whether in africa or in the middle east or in other part in other parts of the world as a society we've always been mean to each other <laughs> categorizing each other um and making a certain group feel more superior than the other for for power and this is something we instill into still in a subtle subtle way or maybe very indirect way we do instill in our societies to our children in schools and in different spaces where they socialize the that's some old school racism the location thing i mean that's like before we even built up the ideas that we have today that's like you look at like greek and roman writing they're like, it's well, still they're, going on. Yeah, they're like, well, they're from from down, you know, this far south, and the people from this far south have a different kind of a hair, and we don't like that. And it's, just, it's like, still <laughs> going on. Trust me, it's still going on. I know, I know. On. It's just funny that it's based, like that. That obviously all the ideas and ideologies evolve and so forth, but it's just like it's the same thing, right? It's it's it started with like, well, well, the people from the humid area are you know and the people from the sea are like this and it's just like yeah so i don't mean to imply with any of the work that i do that the you know hierarchies based on identity or any kind of new those are much in fact part of my point is that i don't really think there's a whole lot we can do as a species to pretend that that people aren't going to just make up rules part of my thing is to say that this thing that we added whiteness and we just decided, oh, now everything falls under this. It's like, wait a second, slow down. We did not, we did not need this also. <laughs> like, and the fact that this one caught on so heavily and it made it so much harder to undo these things that are as old as humans. You know, like, cause we, you can't get away from the like, well, I, uh, I don't like the people from over there. Uh, you could tell somebody that's wrong, but when you've got all of the ideologies that are tied to whiteness behind it, man, <laughs> it's like a triple whammy, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, it, you know, people say that race doesn't exist, so therefore we shouldn't talk about it. And I know you're not saying that, uh, but none of these things exist mm. in that sense. They're I mean, constructed. We we right. we as a human, we we made them. Right. And, but on the other hand, we can't pretend that they don't exist after they've been constructed. Mm. Right. They're like they're, which is to say, they're not innate things. Mm. They're not innate to humanity. But we can't just pretend that they're not here now. Mm. So now what? And that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. Is like, so now what? Right. You know, we need to what are we going to try to go back to a time before there was whiteness? I have no idea. I, I mean, you know, I'm just giving out ideas here. You know, like, do I think, first of all, do I think it's really going to happen in that sense? No, not really. Um, But when I say that, I'm not really talking about just people's skin tone and so forth. It's like it's all of the things that are tied to it. It's and when we talk about academia. It's the it's really the way that it's built up to reflect it, right? Mm -hmm. Because people will say that you can't prove, I'm not saying this is true, 
but people will say that you can't prove that certain things were tied to racism because they did not explicitly say mm. that it was about that. Now, that's also not true of certain things. Like, you can read the writings of, like, the 19th century, and they're talking about race and all over the place. But, like, still, even if you ignore that, there are certain systems, like, especially, like, within academia, where they really always thought they were better than everybody. Uh, mm. So they really were trying to be high-minded about stuff. And though they still let a bunch of racist stuff happen in there, uh, when you talk about eugenics and all that, like, um, they still were trying not to be crude about things, right? Mm. So then it's hard for me to say, well, this was technically explicitly constructed to only better white people or something like that, right? Mm. Because it may not be written down anywhere. Mm. But when I talk about these hierarchies and race and whiteness and so forth, what I'm really talking about is the fact that they just uphold the ideas that were tied to the creation of these categories. Mm. You know, I don't really care if we're talking about race or we're talking about the people from the west corner of the country right or the people who are closer to the desert or whatever i'm just you know whatever uh it's this idea that there are characteristics of people aside from whether or not they harm other people that will make them less deserving of support from their society you know, because to me, support from society, people will say love. And I do say love in the book at the end, because there are some people who won't listen if I don't use that word. But mm. love, love is individual. Mm. Um, community is what we don't, but all this stuff prevents us from having more effectively. And here's the thing. We still do get, make it in our mm. groups. Like me, you, all the people I talk to. I don't, it's not as great a community as it could be if I live near these people, but mm. it's still a community. And more than anything else, I don't know how many people who, with the book and the work, I know I'm preaching to the choir. It says it in the book, but it, it, it it's, it's, I'm trying to build a larger community mm. so that we can, then it doesn't depend on me or you or any of us individually to do this mm. work. Then we can talk about it and we come up with a 30 ideas as mm. opposed to 30 of us. You know, I tried to put something together last year and just never went anywhere because, you know, this divide and conquer thing. There were people who were invited and they said, well, technically that's not exactly what I studied. I'm like, oh, that. <laughs> It's just like, it doesn't matter that much, man. As long as you're all about this community and this solidarity and, and like the things that you want to do to, to change the ideologies, to change the narrative. Um, I don't really care if you are a linguistics expert or technically a, a, a second language acquisition expert or a teaching expert or whatever it is. Like if you care about the people involved in it, then you need to try to do things differently and you might fail and you just try again. Yeah, mm -hmm. so. I like what you say about uh, support and community and if if I may link it back to the fact that, um, you know, the personal stories we shared and the fact that you don't really like to talk about being people being racist, but rather the overall issue of racism that we're all trying to deconstruct in, in one, way, one way or another. So um, basically, when I enter spaces, I am there to be part of the community. 
and within this community most of the time, especially being based in the global north, most of the time I am, yes, the minority and minoritized, but my purpose is bigger than myself. My purpose is being part of this community. So if within that community there are vulnerable vulnerabilities, um, especially coming from white people where they wouldn't feel comfortable um, addressing the topic of racism, um, I'm there, you know, as long as it is not an emotional burden for me, as long as it doesn't affect my mental health and I'm capable to distance myself and help by either listening or suggesting ideas or most of the time I don't do the reassurance thing. Um, I don't do like, oh, no, what you said was OK. It's not really racist. But but most of the time I offer education and uh, that comes across as a chat in the um, in the lunch space uh, where someone would come to me. I don't know if I introduce myself as a an EAP teacher who te- teaches Chinese students, for example, uh, a lot of uh, once once it happens once, actually, it happened once um, a professor came up to me and she said, oh, what do you teach? You know, the whole small talk in, in the coffee space in the lunch area. Um, and I say, yeah, that's what I teach. And these are the group of students that I teach who are Chinese students. And the question that followed was, do you teach them to be more interactive in the classroom? Because we need them as, uh, to join the course and to be active, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where I drop an article or a research paper where I say, you know, your definition of being active is probably based in a Western culture where asking questions and talking to people and being you know vocal is how you interpret being an interactive student while in other cultures it might not be the case and and distancing myself and distancing the person is my safe way of uh, saying you know what you're saying is based in bias and it's mainly a racial bias but I'm not really saying that I'm just citing somebody who said it um and 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 that was an educating moment for myself um trying to approach this uh, topic without harming the other person and harming myself but also offering some educating information where the person would go back to their office and then they would say well actually i might be judging my students from an, a racial angle or a, a cultural bias that i have thinking that People who come from certain countries are passive because they don't show activeness the same way the students who are local show activeness in the classroom. So, um, yeah, community support, uh, it can take many forms and it doesn't have to be, well, let me reassure you, you're not racist, but it can, it can be, let's talk about it, you know. I don't have anything to say to add to that. Um, so, Dr. Dewey, thank you for joining me today. Um, I think that people will get a lot out of this conversation if they choose to pay attention to it. But I don't think anyone listens to my podcast for a casual drop-in. It's not that kind of show. So thank you once again for your time. 
Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to get you on. We, we did a lot of email tag, but we did it. We did it. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Justin. It's, uh, it was, a uh, very refreshing to talk in a, in a very, uh, safe space. I do feel, you know, that we needed that conversation. Well, let's put it this way. This is the only time I ever get to really talk to anybody at length. So I'm just like, hey, let's have a podcast. And then we have this conversation. <laughs> That's it. Because I don't really get, like, I can't call people when I'm at work and I can't, you know, at night, uh, and all the kids and all that. So, you know, just, it's just this. So I kind of use this as a way to get my ideas sort of sorted out. And I'm not writing a dissertation anymore, but like, I would do this to keep my ideas flowing for the dissertation. So, all right. But thank you. No, thank you.